What we are seeing in Acts chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, especially verse 8, is that Jesus now has spent 40 days after his resurrection preparing his disciples for a task, an assignment that is impossible. Parenting, for some of you who have young, young kids now, it's not an impossible task. Turn to your spouse and say, this is not an impossible task. We can make it. Okay? But what Jesus is assigning to his disciples is an impossible task. It's an assignment that by themselves, in and of themselves, with anything and everything that they could muster up, is an impossible assignment. There's no way in the world that they can fulfill what Jesus is asking them to do. He's not only asking them to go and make disciples, but he's telling them to go into the ends of the earth and make disciples. And if you can imagine this very small band of disciples having been given by Jesus this assignment, they must have been overwhelmed. But Jesus promises them that he's going to provide for them a helper. And this helper, capital H, this helper is going to be none other than the person of the Holy Spirit. And he's already described to them in John chapter 14, 15, and 16 that he's going to send them a helper. And this helper is going to provide for them what is necessary and what is needed in order to fulfill the task. And then he promises that this Holy Spirit, this person called the Holy Spirit, is going to reside in them. He will be present in them at Pentecost. If they will go to Jerusalem and they are to wait there 10 days, the Holy Spirit will fall upon them and they will be filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit. And this presence of the Holy Spirit will empower them for the assignment, for the task, for the mission of carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth. And this, this assignment is, is going to require a, a, a power outside of themselves, a source of energy, of empowerment that they currently do not have, but they will receive. And we've talked about this reality and how now we who are in Christ have also received this incredible person in the promise of the Holy Spirit who resides within us. The moment we place our faith and trust in Jesus, he builds a permanent residence within us. And we too, like the disciples now, through faith in Jesus, have the person, the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. And we then have a power source within us that enables us and empowers us, equips us, leads us, guides us in order to fulfill and to accomplish our assignment, our task, like the disciples. What's the purpose of this empowerment? Now, it's important for us to understand that there are a lot of people today who want to convince us that the person of the Holy Spirit is for a lot of other things other than the primary purpose. The purpose of the Holy Spirit isn't so that I can feel good. It isn't so that I can jump a pew or raise a hand or do some extraordinary work. The purpose of the Holy Spirit has been given to his disciples for the primary task, as we saw two Sundays ago, primarily to witness. Because without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, they will not be able to fulfill the purpose for which they were created, and that is to witness to a world that is hostile toward their witness. Because, you see, they don't live in a world that is going to be receptive, that is, that is going to take a liking to, that is going to be accepting early on of the message that they have. And there's going to be a lot of hostilities. I mean, when you think about it, they actually murdered Jesus. The disciples are well aware of the fact that there's going to be some hostility in their attempt to fulfill this purpose that he has for them. And so he says to them in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, 
But I will give you the person and the presence of the Holy Spirit who will empower you in order to accomplish and fulfill this assignment, this task, for the purpose of witnessing, of sharing the gospel with those that you know. And then, notice at the end of Acts 1.8, he tells them where they are to share this witness. You know, it's important, I think, for us to understand that the where is as important as the why. The where is as important as the why. We are to witness. And the where is specifically lined out by Jesus. And it's in this text that he tells us that as we engage in the world that we live in with this incredible message of the gospel, this good news of the gospel, there are specific things and specific places and specific people that he has ready for them. He has readied these people to be not only recipients, but to then receive the gospel that they are then to take to them. He is already working through the, through the movement and of the Holy Spirit in these regions so that when they arrive and they proclaim the good news, they will not only hear it, but they will receive it and put their faith and trust in Christ. And so God's empowering pursuit is that of lost people. And aren't you glad that God pursues lost people? He pursued you one day, like he did me. As an eight-year-old boy sitting uh, just about halfway over here with my mom, and, and we were going through the worship service, and at the end of the service, there was an invitation was giving, and something beyond myself pulled me down that aisle, and I talk to my dad about placing my faith and trust in Jesus as best as I knew how as an eight-year-old boy coming to know Christ as my Savior. When and where did you do that? You were minding your own business. You were living your own life. You were doing your own thing. And all of a sudden, he invaded your world and he called you unto himself. And you, by faith, responded to that call and received Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord. And now you, being pursued by him, but brought to faith in Jesus, and through that he saved your soul. How many of you did that when you were children? Can you raise your hand? You did it as a child. How, all right, put those in. How many as an adult would you raise your hand? As an adult, you place your faith and trust in Christ. I hope you were able to raise your hand today. But if not, at the end of the service, we'll give you an opportunity to do that in our next steps area over here because we don't want anyone here to leave without having that experience, that understanding, that opportunity to place their faith and trust in Christ. But God is in pursuit of lost people. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Why did Jesus come? He came because God is in the pursuit of lost people. He is pursuing lost people. When Christ came and began his ministry early on in the book of Matthew, he then began to pursue lostness. When he came to the disciples that he first called to follow him, he first called the, the two brothers who were fishing, and he said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. He then went to the other two brothers who were mending their nets with their father's ebony, and he called them unto himself. And that is what Jesus was doing during his earthly ministry. He was pursuing lostness and calling people into discipleship. They become fully devoted Christ followers. And so when he leaves, after spending this time 40 days with his disciples, equipping them in the school of discipleship, he says, guys, I want you to continue in the mission of making disciples, just like I did, you do. Why? Because God is still pursuing lost people today. 
And so you and I as a church, we're not here for ourselves, but we're here to fulfill a mission that God has given us to pursue lostness in our city. You may not think there are no lost people in our city, but I'm going to give you some statistics, at least just one statistic in a minute that will change your mind about that. But let's take a look at the text and let's see, how do I engage in the pursuit of making disciples? Number one, I start inside my world. We have to start inside of our world. That's where we start. Jesus said that he wanted them to go first and make disciples in Jerusalem. I did some research uh, in these last two weeks about the size of Jerusalem. You know, there's a debate about how big Jerusalem actually was, anywhere from 40,000 to a couple of hundred thousand. There's a huge debate about how big the city of Jerusalem was at the, at the, at the time that this was written. But um, it doesn't really matter because we also know that the Passover has just been conducted. And, and we also know that there are some people who, who had gathered there because of the Passover. So many believe there could have been several hundred thousand, even to a million people inside of Jerusalem at this particular time in which Jesus is communicating to his disciples to take the good news, the gospel of Jesus, into the city of Jerusalem. Now, we think about Jerusalem, and we, we know in our minds that it's the capital of Israel, but let's just think about Jerusalem during the time of Jesus for a minute. Did you know that Jerusalem was a hostile place? I mean, I mentioned it a while ago. It was Jerusalem where Jesus was arrested. It was Jerusalem where Jesus was tried and convicted. It was Jerusalem in which they led him down the path to the cross. It was in Jerusalem that they hung his body on that cross, the place of the skull, and it was near Jerusalem, just outside of Jerusalem, where he died. And, and, and I can imagine that as they're hearing this, they're realizing and recognizing, not to this degree, maybe at this point, but after, later, they're saying, you know, Jerusalem is a hostile environment. They didn't accept the message of Jesus, nor him as their Messiah, and they crucified him. Now you're asking us, Jesus, to take the good news to Jerusalem, the very people that crucified you. I mean, if there was ever a group of people that shouldn't have become recipients of this great news through Jesus, it was those in Jerusalem, those religious elite that crucified Christ. And yet, you read throughout the book of Acts that where did they go in Jerusalem, the primary place to preach and proclaim the gospel? Inside of the temple. They constantly, continually go to the temple to the very religious elite and proclaim right there in sight of those people how brave of them, how brass of them, how courageous of them to take the gospel to Jerusalem to this incredible hostile group of people that crucified their Lord. When you think about it also, Jerusalem is filled with an occupying force, the Roman Empire. They don't like the Romans. And several times they were hoping that Jesus was the Messiah that was going to liberate them from their captors in Rome. And the Romans didn't take kindly to this message as well because we're going to see in just a little bit they're going to destroy Jerusalem. So they have a hostile occupying force that doesn't like any disruption in the city and this gospel is going to bring about disruption and there's going to be some hostility against the Romans and they didn't fool around, man. And they knew that taking the gospel in such confined quarters, it was going to be hard to hide, especially when you're proclaiming, declaring the good news. And, and it was a hostile place. And yet Jesus says, I want you to begin in Jerusalem. 
Well, take a look at Acts chapter 2. It's interesting on the screen that we have for us this incredible passage after verses 1 through 13, after Pentecost, where they waited 10 days and the Holy Spirit fell. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And after they were filled with the Holy Spirit, there's a crowd that begins to convene because of the more than likely the sound of the wind. And also as they gather, they hear these disciples, these apostles, speaking the gospel in languages that they were not familiar with. And so a discussion begins to brew up between the disciples and these people. And Simon Peter in Acts 2.14, notice, and Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. I mean, here we have right off the bat, just as soon, 10 days later, as they have been filled and they have received and been filled with the Holy Spirit, now we see Simon Peter with the 11 standing up. And what is he doing? He's proclaiming the gospel to those in Jerusalem. The immediate filling of the Holy Spirit brought out an obedience to the great commission task of proclaiming, declaring the good news of Jesus to people who had not yet heard him nor received him. To the people in Jerusalem. The next passage is found in Acts chapter 5 verse 27. We saw it two Sundays ago where we saw how um, the, the religious elite were so jealous of what was going on and, 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 and how the, the church was, was growing in number. I mean, 3,000 people were saved by that one message at the end of Acts chapter 2. 3,000. That's, that's a lot of people. And the Lord was adding to the church daily. People who were being saved and the popularity was growing. The church was growing and they become jealous of the apostles and their popularity and, and, and people coming to the, this faith and this, this guy named Jesus whom they crucified and have him arrested. They throw him in prison because it's late at night. We saw two Sundays ago. They were waiting for the next day to try him, try them. And an angel appears and lets them loose. When the trial convened, they... Summoned for the prisoners, and the prisoners were obviously not there. And the guard reported the, their, their cell is locked, but they are not there. We cannot find any way or any reason to see how they escaped. And while they were debating on themselves, we saw how then someone then came and reported, Hey, guys, let me tell you something. Those, those guys that you put in prison, they're back in the very same place where you arrest them, and they're proclaiming the gospel where you arrested them. Without fear, they're, they're, man, they're, they're preaching the gospel. And so they arrest them a second time and bring them into this kangaroo court and begin to have this, this court in which they're trying to convict them. And it's interesting. Notice what he says in verse 27. And when they had brought them, they sat them before the council and the high priest, questioning them, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet, notice this, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. They acknowledge the fact that these apostles had filled the entire city of Jerusalem with the gospel. Can I ask you a question? Would you say that Wichita is a city that is filled with the gospel? Anybody dare to claim that? Anybody? I read in a data survey the other day while I was up in Vancouver early in the morning. It said that 46% of Wichita's, 
46% of us who live in Wichita claim no religious affiliation. 46%. Would you say that's a lot of people? And yet we walk around and we live our lives day to day living in our city as if everyone knows Jesus. And 46% of the people that you come in contact with every day are lost without Christ. They are destined and doomed to hell. And yet there are churches all around. And yet there are 46% of us who are not affiliated with any religious preference at all. We've been given a Jerusalem called Wichita. And part of our responsibility as members of the body of Christ, as as a fellowship called Emmanuel Baptist Church, to take the gospel and to saturate this city with the gospel of Christ. We've already seen how we are compelled by the Spirit to speak and to share the gospel. And I wonder, with so much lostness in our city, why are there so many empty blue seats in our church fellowship. Well, we need to start inside our world. You have a world that he's entrusted you with. It's a world filled with lost people. 46% of the people I'm convinced that are in your world right now do not know Jesus. And yet we remain silent. we got to start inside of our world, which is Wichita. So what do you tell them? Guys, start inside your world. Start with Jerusalem. Then, not only start inside your world, but I want you to, I want you to share near your world. I want, I want you to share near your world. Notice, Jerusalem and in all Judea. And is a conjunction Not only are we to share in Jerusalem, but our Wichita, but we are to also and in, in as a conjunction of location, in the region, in the location, in all of Judea. Judea obviously was the surrounding area of Jerusalem. It included Jerusalem, but it wasn't just Jerusalem proper. It was what we might call the burbs of Jerusalem. Wichita, which include, who knows, Hutchinson to Wellington to Goddard to, it's on the other end. Sorry? Augusta. Do you believe there are lost people in those places? He says, go to Judea. Judea was 50 mile, 55 miles long and about 25 to 30 miles wide, and it ranged 1,350 square miles. I tried to find how many square miles were in Sedgwick County or, or in the region, and there's some discussion about that, so just whatever that is. But what he's saying to them is, I want you to start with Jerusalem, and then I want you to take it into the burbs around Jerusalem in the area of Judea. Don't just keep it here in the city. Take it just beyond the city. 
Obviously, as we begin to see the spread of the gospel, there were people that were on the outskirts of the city who came into the city who more than likely became believers in Christ after hearing the message. But he says to them, I want you to take the message not just to your city, but take it to the region around your city, into Judea. How did they do that? Chapter 2, verse 14, if you take a look at it, they did it early on because even in the first message, as I said earlier, following Pentecost, Simon Peter stands up and he begins to preach, and he says, as he calls them out, men of Judea. So obviously there were men who were in the city of Jerusalem from Judea. He acknowledges the fact that there are Judeans who are there who were listening to his message, who more than likely were part of the 3,000 that were saved on that occasion and maybe being saved day to day. And they, as they were being saved, took the gospel back to Judea, and they were then to take that gospel from Jerusalem into Judea. We are not only to take the gospel around our city in Wichita. And before I pass this opportunity up, one of the things that sort of bothered me a little bit when I came 10 years ago is we were reaching the burbs, but we weren't doing a whole lot to reach the inner city of Wichita. And there were some who didn't want those kind of people in our church. I don't know if you've noticed where our church is, but it's not in the best location. Did you know that I had people who came to me early on, 10 years ago, when they came to me and said, can we move our church? Every other church has left town. They've gone to the burbs. They've abandoned their city. I said, well, if you want to get pennies on the dollar in this incredible facility... Then, then we need to move, but we got a $4 million debt, so I don't see how in the world we're going to move with a $4 million debt. I mean, is the gospel not for the area surrounding our church? And there are some Burbites who come and visit our church who don't like some of the mixture that's in our church and choose to go back to the burbs to find a church that is best and more convenient for them. And I say better to do that now than uh, two or three years later and try to change us because we're trying to reach the area around us. That's our mission field. And there are thousands of people right around us that desperately need the gospel. And once we start with our Jerusalem, we then take it to our Judea. Yes, we also must become a church that reaches out to those of us who live in the burbs. I'm not sure where I live. Is Rose Hill the burbs, Pastor Gail? It's the burbs? I think Rose Hill is more the country. More, maybe more Samaria. I don't know. We chose that location because it's about in the middle where Patty works in, in, in the church. So it's more convenient for us. But anyway, he says... Reach out into Judea. So we have a responsibility to reach out with the gospel in the suburbs. Because that's our Judea. That's our Judea. Um, ten days later, he's preaching to Judeans. In 8-1, notice, and Saul approved his, his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Stephen is stoned, and notice, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. 750 plus thousand people live in our Judea. And over 50% of them 
have no religious affiliation whatsoever. 750 plus thousand. Depends on what statistic you read. Would you say that's a lot of people? And yet he says, go not just to Jerusalem, to Wichita, but go to Judea, those areas, those burbs surrounding Wichita. He wants us to share with those that are near my world. Thirdly, we are to then stretch outside of our world. Notice, he says, go into all Judea, Samaria, and to Samaria, Judea, and Samaria. Judea is the burbs, is the area around Jerusalem, Judea. And he says, go then outside of that, go to Samaria. Now, Samaria is an interesting place because it's just north of Jerusalem and just north of Judea. But there's something interesting about Samaria. Did you know, historically, the Jews and the Samaritans didn't like each other? The Jews were prejudiced against the Samaritans. It wasn't a skin color thing. It was a religious thing. They had their own, their own religious beliefs that were conflicting with those of the Jews. And they believed that they were the center of the universe. And they only accepted five of the, of the books of the Pentateuch, of the, of the books of Moses. And they believed that, that the Messiah was going to come to their region, not to Jerusalem. And so they had their own place of worship as well. And so there was a lot of tension there. And, and because of the Assyrian occupation of Samaria... Even though Samaria was a city that was first founded by uh, the third or the fourth king or maybe the fifth king of Israel, it was eventually conquered by Samaritans and became uh, about this with the Assyrians and became known as a region of Samaria. And the Assyrians that occupied that area uh, uh, married the Jews who were there. And as a result of that, they were considered inbreds or, or second-class Jews if they were considered Jewish at all. So there was this, this hatred, this prejudice against the Samaritans. And I, I can imagine as, as they're standing there listening to Jesus saying, I, I want you to take the gospel to Jerusalem. We can do that. Take it to Judea. Hey, we can do that. And take it to Samaria. Samaria. I mean, when they had to travel on the other side of Samaria, they went around Samaria because no real religious, righteous, Jewish religious person would ever travel through Samaria. They would travel miles around it. And now Jesus is saying, take the gospel to the Samaritans, the people that you despise, the ones that you hate. And I wonder who that group is for the church today. Can you imagine taking the gospel to anyone that hates Christians today? What group hates Christians today? Come on. Do we have a responsibility to take it to those who hate us? Who have made it their life mission to kill us and to destroy our faith? And yet, he tells them to take it to Samaria. And it says in, in chapter 8, after they dispersed, notice verse 4, now those who were scattered went throughout preaching the word. 
there was an incredible persecution after Stephen was stoned and they began to scatter and, and the gospel went into Judea, but it also went into Samaria. They went into Samaria to hide and they took the gospel with them. What Satan attempted to do to squelch and to stop the gospel from spreading in Jerusalem and in Judea eventually became a gospel that was taken to Samaria. The, the Holy Spirit used persecution to take the gospel in fulfilling the great commission that God had given through Jesus to his disciples. And they scattered and went about preaching the word. As they fled for their lives, they weren't silent. They proclaimed and they preached the gospel of Jesus. And then notice verse 5. This is Philip. This is not the apostle Philip, but it's the evangelist Philip. Went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had, who had them. And many were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Samaria. Samaritans were pre being prepared in advance for the gospel of Jesus. How? You see, the Samaritans also believed that there was a Messiah that was coming. And so when the gospel came to Samaria, all they had to do is say, hey, you know the Messiah you guys have been waiting for? He has arrived. His name is Jesus. And they readily not only heard, but received the gospel. Chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The church scattered to these regions. Why? Because of the persecution, they were obedient to the commandment to take the gospel to these places. What is our Samaria? How about the state of Kansas? Close to 3 million people. I know that's not a lot. Doesn't seem like a lot compared to the rest of the, of the nation. 3 million people. Who some say that maybe not even 50% of those of us who live in Kansas have any religious affiliation whatsoever. And so we have a responsibility as a church not only to take the gospel to Wichita, not only to the surrounding area of our county and counties around us, but to take it throughout every aspect and every part of our state in the state of Kansas to take the gospel of Christ. 50% do not have any religious affiliation in the state of Kansas. Does that blow your mind? Half of the people that live in our state have no religious affiliation whatsoever. And it's going to take us stretching beyond our counties into the state of Kansas with the gospel. But notice, in, unless we say, okay, we've done our job, we've taken it to everywhere in Kansas. Notice what he says. And, and this statement can kind of blow your mind a little bit because you think, you know, okay, we've started inside our world. We've shared near our world. We, we're stretching a little bit outside of our world in the state of Kansas. So therefore, we fulfilled our responsibility. But yet, he says to his disciples, notice number four, and to the end of the earth. It's like Jesus to be like that, isn't it? Hey, you, think, you think that's it? You think this is as far you're supposed to go? Let me include the rest of the world. And that's that conjunction again. I want you to be my witnesses, not only in Jerusalem, not only in Judea, not only in Samaria, but and to. That word to is an interesting word. It means until everyone on the planet has had an opportunity to hear to receive the gospel. 
Everyone on the face of the earth, every human being that he has made. Do you know how many people there are in the world today? 7.5 billion people to the end of the earth. Did they do that? I've had this discussion with a couple of young pastors in the last two weeks that we've been kind of talking about this passage, and some have claimed that this Acts 1-8 has been fulfilled. Therefore, the disciples fulfilled Acts 1-8. I have contention with that because we have no historical evidence, according to the book of Acts, that anyone took the gospel to Asia. Although the historical fathers, I know, said that some of the apostles took the gospel to Asia. I get that. But there's no factual, biblical recording that I can find. If you can find one, please correct me. I'm, I'm open to correction from time to time that they didn't fulfill this great commission. And there was an open-ended commission that he intended for us to fulfill today. Acts 13, 1, notice, and there were in the church of Antioch, prophets and teachers. Antioch, after Jerusalem is destroyed, is going to become the center of Christianity. And so as we see the flight that takes place in chapter 8, we then see in Antioch there were these prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. These two people here that are mentioned, Barnabas and Saul, are about to be set apart and sent out with the gospel. Notice verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Did you see that? Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Pastor Gale is the only pastor that's left since I've been here. That, that, that's a fair statement. You have survived 10 years of me, almost. The biggest and most heated discussion we had when I first arrived was about the call. You remember that, Pastor Gale? The call. There were some in our group that didn't believe or somehow had not understood the call to ministry. I want to say this, and I want you to hear me clearly, please. I am not looking for, what I do today is not my profession. It is my calling. Because if I could do anything other than what I'm doing today, believe me, there were times I would have done it. This is not a profession. This is not something that I do so that I can earn a living. It's something that I do because I have been called. And God called Barnabas and Paul. The Holy Spirit called them to do the work that God had prepared for them, an assignment, a task, a mission. And that mission was to take the gospel to the world in which they knew in that time. And if you take a look at the text, what happens next? And then after fasting and praying... They laid hand, their hands on them and sent them off. That's the commissioning of sending them out. And they sent them out. Notice they sent them out to go to take the gospel. Verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Who sent them out? Not the church, not the men who sent them out. 
The Holy Spirit sent them out. The Holy Spirit was the one who called them. The Holy Spirit was the one who put it upon the hearts and the minds of the men and the people of that congregation to, to commission them, and they sent them out. And the Holy Spirit sent them out. They submitted to his leadership, notice, and being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. John Mark, not John the Apostle. They were sent, they, were sum, they submitted to the Spirit, they shared the gospel, and we see the spreading of the gospel going out from Antioch in all these missionary journeys that the Apostle Paul did. And yet he says to us, there are 7.5 billion people on the planet, and we have a responsibility as members of Emmanuel Baptist Church to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. One last passage, Revelation 5. I want to end with this. Interesting passage to me. There's several places and several ways I wished I could have ended this, but this is the one I've decided is the best way. In Revelation chapter 5, we see in verses 1 through 4 that there's a scroll. And this scroll is possessed or being held in the hands of God who's sitting on the throne. And as he holds on to this scroll, this scroll is, is, is a scroll in which contains the, the judgments that are going to be unleashed on the earth. But it's more than that. It's also the redemption of a humanity that is under the enslavement and the captivity of Satan and sin. So there's, there's a, there's a, there, there are judgments in these scrolls, but there also is the plan of God saving a lost humanity from Satan and redeeming us from the enemy. So there's, there's a, a negative and there's a positive. And for those of us who are in Christ, there's a positive thing. And God is holding on to the scroll. And, and in verses 1 through 4, we see that there's a search throughout the universe for someone who is worthy to take the scroll and to open it. And in all of their search, they can find no one who's worthy to take the scroll from the hands of, of Jehovah and open the scroll and unleash the judgments and redeem the believers. Verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which were the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he, Jesus, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which were the prayers of the saints. And they sing a new song. Check out the song they sing. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Did you see that? Every tribe, every language, every people, and from every nation. That's us today at Emmanuel Baptist Church in Wichita, Kansas. We are the ones who are now the recipients and have been entrusted with this incredible blessing called the gospel of Jesus. And on that day, when we stand before Jesus and we're singing our praises to him, 
We're going to be standing next to people from every tribe, from every language, from every nation around the world. We have a global responsibility. Now, I love being a Southern Baptist. We have a thing called the cooperative program. Can I tell you how well we've done? I, I don't do this very often, but I'm going to do it today just because. <laughs> and you know, if you know me at all, you know I don't like to brag about us or our church or what God's doing here. But did you know that uh, we gave $2,062,136 to the cooperative program in the last nine years? In the last nine years, $2,062,136 to the cooperative program. Would you say that's a lot of money? I don't know about you, but in my bank account, that'd be a lot of money. Why is that a lot of money? Because 10 years ago, nine and a half years ago when I came, we were $4 million in debt. We had laid off, is it safe to say, several dozen staff people. We were downsizing. And people said, you're crazy for going to Emmanuel Baptist Church to be the pastor there because they're $4 million in debt and they're not meeting their budget and there's no way in the world that they're going to be able to pay off that building with the, with the amount of people they have in that church. You know what our debt is today? Close to $1.2 million. We haven't missed a single payment. We've gone from about $40,000 a month in payments to just $12,000 a month in payments. And at the rate that we're paying it off, it should be paid off in just a couple of years. I had a meeting once with the bank, and the bank told me, he said, hey, uh, you know, every year I had one of these meetings with our bank because they want to know what we were doing to pay down our debt. And they tried to convince me that it would be quicker if we paid down our debt if we quit giving to missions. I mean, we think about a bank looking at $2 million. That's a lot of people, isn't it? I mean, that's a lot of money, isn't it? $2 million. I mean, if we had had that $2 million, we'd be out of debt. Right? We'd be out of debt. And after I heard their little spill that we should use mission money to pay off our debt and stop giving to the cooperative program, I looked at them and I said, you know what? If I did that at Emmanuel Baptist Church, I'd probably be looking for a new church. And I should be. The cooperative program is, is that method, it's that tool that we pull together with 46,000 other Churches just like ours, 46,000 of us give millions of dollars every year annually to reach the world for Christ. Some of you have not been Baptists very long. And this is the greatest thing, I think, since we have, I think it's of the Lord to help us fulfill the Great Commission. God, I believe, is a faithful God who has not only allowed through you and through your obedience and your generosity to not only help us pay down our debt, but to help us support the missional causes that God wants to do through us to reach the world. What some of us don't know, and I'm going to brag one more time, I asked for this list from Pastor Gale. He said, financial ministry support for one year or more from our church in the last nine years 
Central Community Church in Smith Center, Kansas, Journey of the Way, Wichita, Kansas, Open Door Bible Church, Kansas City, Missouri, Impact Church, Rose Hill, Kansas, Family Life Church, Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, Renaissance Church, Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, Renaissance Church, Montreal, Quebec, Canada, Providence Church, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, Summit Life Church, Whitefish, Montana, New Story, Seattle, Washington, and Emmanuel Hispanic Church here in Wichita. Those are churches that we've been directly responsible for helping financially start and support during their inception. Financial support for one-time or special ministry need, New Life Sanctuary in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Chuckwater Valley Church in Chuckwater, Wyoming, Centerpoint Church in Andover, Kansas. Churches that right now we have under our prayer support and our watch care, Salt Church in Winnipeg, Manitoba, New Life Sanctuary, Winnipeg, Manitoba, Family Life Church, Winnipeg, Manitoba, Central Community Church, Smith Center, Kansas, Maple Street, Oxford, Kansas, Chugwater Valley Church, Chugwater, Wyoming, Centerpoint, Andover, Kansas, Open Door Bible Church, Kansas City, Missouri, Providence Church, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, Summit Life Church, Whitefish, Montana, and New Story, Seattle, Washington. Wow. You belong <laughs> to a church that doesn't just look within itself and take care of just itself. You belong to a church that believes in the great commission that God has given us to go and make disciples of all nations, of every tribe, of every language across the world. Can we give God a praise? Thank you for not just looking internally, Emmanuel Baptist Church. Thank you for sacrificially giving so that we can go ourselves and so that we can give so that others, when we can't go, who will go? Let's boil it down to this as we close. God has called you and he's called me to our Jerusalem. You got to start where you are. And if 46% of those of us who live here in Wichita do not know Christ as our Savior and Lord, then we are not doing our job until we take the gospel to them. We need to take the gospel beyond our city, Wichita, and into the counties that surround Wichita. Personally responsible ourselves to proclaim as we go, take the gospel of Jesus to everyone we meet because we know that 50% of the people that we engage with every day do not claim, do not know Jesus as their Savior and as their Lord. We have several opportunities to go on mission this summer, right, Pastor Gail? Some of them are in this city and some of them are in the state of Kansas. And God needs to call us outside of our comfort zones and, yes, even take vacation time to go and to tell others in this state about Christ. We have opportunities in, in, in Wyoming. We have opportunities in, in uh, uh, Seattle. And we have opportunities in Vancouver. Is there another one I'm missing? In Smith Center. I was just in Vancouver. Did you know that 90 plus percent of people have absolutely no affiliation of any faith at all? 90% of what, 4 million people? Can you imagine living in a city where 90% of the people claim no faith at all? 
90%. Not 50 like Kansas, 90%. And I wonder if God is calling you to missions. If you are a disciple, you are a missionary, period. It's not optional. Because the Holy Spirit, as we have been saying, that resides in you, that presence and that power will well up and he will just cause you to share your faith with those around you who don't know him. And we need to stop thinking as if we live in a Christian city, in a Christian county, in a Christian state, because we do not. And I know that there are people right now that the Holy Spirit of God is calling you to speak to, communicate with, to invest in, and to lead to faith in Christ. And yet we remain silent and unresponsive to that leadership of the Spirit as he wants to speak through us to draw them unto himself. Would you bow with me for a moment? Who do you know right now? Who has God placed in your life right now? That needs a witness. Would you ask God today, disciple of Jesus, to open your eyes? You've been blinded too long. To help you see those around you who desperately need to know Jesus. They are damned, they are doomed, and they are destined for hell unless they place their faith and trust in Jesus. And how dare we keep silent with the good news of Jesus and keep it to ourselves? Where is your mission field? Who has God placed in your life? Who is he leading you to share your faith with? Be bold. Be courageous. Did you commit today to going to your Jerusalem, your Judea, your Samaria, or to the ends of the earth? Wherever he calls, wherever he leads, you will go.